I want to start today, as often I do, or at least sometimes I do, by asking you a question. And the question is this, do you have a testimony? And does that testimony match up with what is biblical? Do you have a biblical testimony? There's no such thing as a Christian without a biblical testimony. And that testimony's foundation is that Jesus Christ is the anchor of our souls. If you'd want to look with me in Matthew chapter 12, there in verse number 20, the scripture reads, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. It is the testimony of every Christian that there have been times when we have had tremendous amounts of doubt, which is a form of unbelief. This doubt and discouragement can lead to backsliding or fear of being a false convert, which leads to the lack of assurance. We can at one moment say, as Peter did, that if I have to die for Christ, I will. And then, at that same day, deny him. Not that we may openly deny that we know Christ, but that we deny him in our actions by being ashamed to speak his name or identify with his shame. At other times, we feel the weight of our remaining sin and are overwhelmed by the sense of its power and we tremble. We sense the unbelief that remains in our heart. We may ask, I don't know if you ask yourself this, but at times we, we look at ourselves and say, really, what separates me from the unbeliever? What, what makes me different? I sense that I have many of the same struggles at times. The struggle at times can, and I believe for some, must be intense as we cry out from the depth of our souls to have a sure confidence in Christ. The scripture teaches that God, in his providence, has given a measure of faith to every Christian, which in context means that, the, that some can easily and quickly have a full confidence in the Savior, which empowers them to serve Christ with their spiritual gifts, while others may struggle and need encouraged in the faith. However, on either side, without Christ being the anchor of our soul, none of us, for one minute, would believe the gospel. This is why Romans 12, 3 starts by saying, For I say, though the, I say through the grace of God given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. We are to consider our former state which would be our present state unless the Lord Jesus stepped into our lives and disrupted them as he did if we are his. We would all be without hope except that the Lord came to us and called us by the Spirit and we were given the gift of faith. And this is why Romans 12, 3 ends by saying, according as God has dealt to every man, the measure of faith. Oh. But how gracious the Lord Jesus is in shepherding his people 
the Lord knows when we need rebuked, even as he rebuked this nobleman that we looked at last week in verse number 46. And the Lord knows when we need encouraged, as we see today and how he spoke to the nobleman shortly after the rebuke. The Lord Jesus will not break the bruised reed. This speaks of a reed that was blown in the wind and and it would bend or crack and, and be on the verge of snapping in two. And the smoking flax speaks of the burning wick that has lost its flame and is is still smoldering. And at any second, it will be extinguished and less given attention. This symbolizes the people of God, that at times we are brought to a point where we are barely aflame or just smoldering for Christ. And we are broken to the point of almost utter despair. And our precious Savior comes and uplifts his people. And we have a testimony for today that we can say that Christ has saved us. Christ has fortified our faith. And Christ will keep us until the end. In Romans chapter 4, if you'd want to look there with me quickly. In Romans chapter 4, in verses 20 and 21. I want you to see this pattern in Scripture that I'll bring to your attention as we work through this text. And in Romans 4, 20 through 21, it says, He, Abraham, staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded what he had promised, he was able to perform. However, in Genesis 12, when Abraham and Sarah went into Egypt, Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife, which was an obvious form of unbelief. And yet in the following chapters, God does miraculous things. Chiefly gives him Isaac as a son, and Abraham's faith is fortified. Moses flees and God comes to him, speaking to him in the burning bush and showing him signs, and Moses' faith is strengthened. David fell into terrible sin, and God could have left him in his impenitent state. But instead, God sent the prophet Nathan, and David repented and was restored. Peter denied the Lord three times, but by grace the Lord came to Peter at the seashore in a a post-resurrection appearance and restored him. John Mark was turned away by the Apostle Paul for his unfaithfulness in the work of the ministry. And yet we find the apostle commending him near the end of his life in 2 Timothy. This is a consistent theme through the Bible. And in John 1, please follow me. You will see how this connects to the text in a few minutes. But in John 1, we find Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Then in John 2, Christ turns the water into wine. As you remember, we went through that chapter several months ago. And if you look back in John, go to John 2, 11, because this directly connects to the text that we have before us today. So think with me, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel all testify that Jesus is the Christ in John 1. 
But then in John 2, the Lord turns the water into wine. And then in 11, he says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. The disciples that were with Christ at the marriage feast had already testified of him. But the Lord Jesus was fortifying or strengthening their faith, lest they be left doubting or succumb to temptation. There was much difficulty ahead for these apostles. And the Lord Jesus knew what they needed. And that was to see great displays of his glory. While others saw the same miracle, and didn't really think much of it. But for these men, the Lord was manifesting his great glory, that he was the word made flesh and dwelt among us, and they beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw the glory of the Father, or the glory of God Almighty, manifested in Christ Jesus as the God-man in making water into wine. In John 2.11, as we just read, it concludes the first miracle that the Lord did in Cana. And this story of the nobleman is introduced to us in verse 46, this way, in 4.46. So Jesus came into Galilee, came into Cana of Galilee, where he made water, made the water wine. And then in John 4:54 it says this concluding this second miracle that he did there this again is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee interesting this second miracle he does in Cana he's not there right he does it uh long distance if we can say it that way i would think that there must be some connection between the first and the second miracle that the Lord did in Cana. Why are they mentioned like that? I do not believe that there are incidental or non-essential details recorded in the Bible. And I see the Lord Jesus strengthening the faith of those whom he is calling. And as they are reinforced in the glory of the person of Jesus Christ, and they have a testimony and we will look at these verses under three headings again stay with me and you'll see how this connects in verse 50 we'll look at the nobleman's testimony planted in verse 51 through 53a we'll look at the nobleman's testimony promoted or strengthened i should say promoted or strengthened and then in verse 53b we'll look at the nobleman's testimony proclaimed. First, in verse 50, the nobleman's testimony planted or established. We covered this verse last week, but I felt that we just breezed through the last four verses of this chapter, and I, I did not think we did justice, so I want to cover them in more detail now. And let me start by saying that every Christian has a testimony of how the Lord has saved us. The Holy Spirit put it this way in Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and have translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. There is no 
greater distinction between darkness and light. It's a contrast, a great contrast that if you've been born again, there's been a radical change. One man gives this illustration, which may sound funny, but I think it makes the the point. He says, one day I was two hours late for a meeting, and when I got there, they asked me why I was so late. And I told them that my car broke down, and I pulled over on the side of the highway, and I noticed my hubcap rolled out into the middle of the road. And I went out to get it, and as I walked into the middle of the highway, I was hit head-on by a logging truck, fully loaded, going 65 miles an hour. And they said, you are either lying or insane. The point of his illustration is that it would be more possible, listen, it would be more possible to be hit by a logging truck, fully loaded, going 65 miles an hour, and be unchanged, then it would for you to be born again and be unchanged. What happens to a man when he is born again is so transformative that there can be no part of his life left unaffected. And this transformation must come out in the form of a testimony. First, this man heard the words of the Lord Jesus that he spoke to him. Look in the text. He says, go thy way, thy son liveth. In the previous verse, the man was asking the Lord to come with him to where his son was so that he could be healed. But now the Lord tells him to go his way for his son has been healed. The man had no evidence that his son had been healed. He may have seen the Lord heal others, but he never seen Christ heal anyone this way, by proxy or or, or by long distance. But we see the same pattern that we saw with Nathaniel in John 1 and the woman at the well earlier in this chapter, or with the man born blind in John 9, or the thesis or principle of Christ's discourses in John 6 and 10 that they have to do with he speaks and the Father draws by the power of the Holy Spirit those who belong to Christ. The Lord speaks, the Father draws by the power of the Holy Spirit those who belong to Christ. And his testimony is our testimony that Christ spoke, then we believed, look at the the next part of verse 50, and the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. He believed or trusted in what Christ said that it was truth. And he believed more than just his son being healed because his whole house gets saved, as we will see. And they could not be saved without hearing the gospel or that Jesus was the Christ, that he he is the Savior of those who come to him by faith and by faith alone. This man left not only with a healed son, but also with a healed heart. He was born from above and believed that Jesus is the Christ. And this is evidence in that he obeyed the Lord. The Lord said, go thy way. 
the text ends by saying that the man went his way. Or he was going home to see his healed son. Let us remember that faith without action is a sham. Is that right? Faith is always, works, should I say, or action are always on the back end of faith. They're not on the front end. Works plus faith do not bring salvation, but faith alone brings salvation that will cause works. You remember with Matthew 7, 21, what the Lord said there? He said, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So there's those that say, and there's those that do. That's the difference. You read it clearly at the end of Matthew 25, the same principle. But the more that you call Christ your Lord and refuse to do what the Father commands, the further you deepen your deception. And what does the Father command? The Father audibly spoke at the Mount of Transfiguration and at the Lord's baptism. And both times he commanded the same thing. That was for us to hear Christ. And embedded in the command to hear is the command to obey. And the Lord Jesus, all through John's gospel, and all the gospels for that fact, is commanding us to believe on him, or as the apostles would say, obey the gospel, believe on Christ. The Lord Jesus in the Gospels is calling men to repent and believe on him. And the apostles in the book of Acts are doing the same. Acts 13, 38, if you would want to turn there. Acts 13, 38. There it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. This nobleman had the same testimony as the Apostle Paul. He heard the words of Christ. He was able to believe, and that was evidenced by his obedience. In Acts 26 is where uh, Paul was being legally examined by King Agrippa. We read it earlier in the service. And Paul defends himself by giving his testimony. And he begins by telling the king of his former life as one who persecuted the church. And then he gives the account that the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And if you'd want to look there in Acts, if you're in Acts 13, you can turn to Acts chapter 26. We read it earlier, as I mentioned, in the service. And then the apostle, though, he, 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 what's his first question? The first question the apostle asks, this isn't in the text in 26, but you can see it clearly in Acts 9, he gets converted, and the first thing he says to the Lord is, what will you have me to do? Right? The same pattern. Christ spoke to him. He believed. What will you have me to do? That was the evidence. That was his testimony. And that is what a true testimony is. The evidence that you have heard the voice of Christ and that you have believed on him 
is that your first question will be after that, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the apostle gives the answer in verse 26 of 16 of what Christ said to him. We don't get this in Acts 9, but here we get more detail. And the apostle tells us what Christ said to him when he asked him, what will you have me to do? And there it is in verse 16 of Acts 26. The Lord said to him, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. What will he have them to do but to be a witness of Christ? The apostle uses this as his defense. He is telling the king that what happened to him was radical. He tells him of his former opposition to Christ and how he was going to Damascus to further persecute Christians. And that is when Christ saved him. This was not his doing, but this was the doings of God in turning him 180 degrees from a persecutor of the church to a promoter of it, from a hater of Christ to a lover of Christ. The Apostle Paul's testimony is recorded six or eight times in the New Testament, possibly more depending on how you look at it, because his testimony is the prototype testimony. Or his testimony is the pattern for all other Christians. And that is exactly what he says in 1 Timothy 1.16. If you were to read that, you were to see, he says, this is a pattern for those that will believe after me. Where he says in verse 15 that I am the chief of all sinners. But this is Paul's testimony of him being the chief of all sinners. Is the pattern of those that believe after But first, we see the nobleman's testimony planted or established by Christ. And that leads us to our second heading, the nobleman's testimony promoted. And he has a testimony. We won't see that fully until our third point, when he preaches the gospel to his whole house. But he has a testimony, we'll see. And this testimony is promoted or strengthened. Look with me in 51 through 53a. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. The nobleman believed, but this was further confirmation. The man believed the words of Christ, that he had healed his son. I think we must assume that there was still some amount of doubt. And I believe this to be true for two reasons. One, because I know my own heart, right? Two, we'll look at in a couple minutes. But I think that you know the story in Mark 9 of the man who had the demon-possessed son and the Lord is away and the apostles cannot cast out the devil's the, the evil spirit. And then the Lord Jesus comes on the scene. And as we read this in Mark 9, 23 and 24, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine 
unbelief. And the Apostle Paul was greeting the Thessalonians in his second letter that he wrote to them. He greets them with these words in 2 Corinthians 1, 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. Or your faith is growing. If their faith was growing, then it shows that it lacked in some way, as is the case with all of us. Does anybody here have a perfect faith, (laughs) a perfect ability to trust God? We praise God that he gives us the gift of faith. But even with such a precious gift, we are but mere men, and our faith is not perfect, and at times it is far from it. The enemy comes in and tempts us with doubt and unbelief, and our flesh responds. And even as those who are converted, we can find unbelief, we are found unbelieving at times. However, the Lord Jesus will not leave his people in this condition. The Lord will not leave his people in this condition. As the nobleman is heading home, it seems he was wavering in his mind and wondering if it was true that his son was really healed. One, I said earlier, because I know of my own heart. But two, I say also, because even after his servants tell him that his son was healed, you'll see it in the text, he further inquires and asks them what hour of the day that he began to amend. He's not fully convinced as of yet, although he's definitely convinced and believing, but yet he he is wavering. You can see it there. First, he wants confirmation by matching the hour of the sun's healing with when he was speaking with Christ. And second, though, he assumes that it was a progressive healing or something that happened or was happening over a period of time. Do you see it there? In verse 52, where he says, when he began to amend, as if he was still sick and was now recovering. Nevertheless, in God's great mercy and providence, the servants answer both of his questions. Look at the end of 52. It says, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And we learn in verse 53 that this was the exact time when the Lord Jesus had said that his son was healed. And his son's fever did not digress or diminish, but the fever left him immediately. This was an immediate and complete healing. And this is how the Lord operates. And it is also how he operates in the conversion of dead sinners. When we are called and saved by Christ, It is immediate and complete. It may not appear that way in our sanctification, and it may not appear that way on our end, because we still at times find ourselves in the situation of the nobleman or the man who had the demon-possessed son. We find ourselves doubting and confused. But if we are in Christ, it is a closed deal. It is complete and immediate. We who are in Christ, our sins can be no more forgiven than they are right now. 
Because when Jesus died, he said, it is finished or paid in full. All of our sins, past, present, and future, because of the completed work of Christ, are forgiven. This is an immediate and complete work. And we, who are in Christ, can be no more perfectly righteous than we are right at this moment. Because the Lord Jesus is our righteousness. If you have your own righteousness, certainly you have none. But in Christ, this is immediate and complete. And as Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, so are his people raised to new life. Now, and ultimately, will be raised to an everlasting life with him. In these bodies, in the second resurrection. This is what we are caused to. To believe. And this is what the Holy Spirit confirms in our hearts over and over again. Right? We doubt and we're brought back to this point that our salvation is complete and it is immediate. That Christ has paid it all. We may not remember the exact minute, but we remember the hour. The hour that we heard Christ speak. And our testimony was planted. And yet, we still doubt in unbelief at times. And Jesus Christ brings confirmation. And how does he bring it? He brings it by the word of his servants. Even as the servants came to this man, by the words of his servant, to confirm that we have truly been healed. And the eternal consequences of the disease of sin have been removed immediately and completely in our justification. This is how Christ heals. You see that in all of his healings. It is immediate and complete. And that leads us to our final heading. But first, in verse 50, we see the nobleman's testimony planted or established by the Lord Jesus telling him, that his son was healed and the nobleman believed and went. Second, in verses 51 through 53, we see the nobleman's testimony promoted or confirmed by Christ. But even though he believed, the nobleman still had doubts and they were done away with when he heard the testimony of the servants. And thirdly, in verse 53b, we see the testimony proclaimed. We see the nobleman's testimony proclaimed. Look with me at the end of verse 53, just that little short part, and himself believed and his household. Look with me in Romans chapters 10. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago. This verse is closely connected to this chapter. But there in 1014, of Romans, it says, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? You must hear. And how shall they hear without a preacher? The nobleman's whole house believed because the Lord raised him up as a preacher of the gospel. 
We can imagine that the nobleman was walking on clouds for the rest of his journey. His son was dying, and he was only hours or minutes from death. And there was nothing that could be done. And in utter despair, the nobleman cried out to Christ for healing. And his plea was heard, and his son was healed. Can we comprehend the elation or, or incredible happiness as he arrived home and his son met him and they hugged and his son was fully healthy. The testimony of the nobleman at this point could not be contained. His testimony could not be contained. He couldn't, he couldn't hold it in. I am sure that he gathered everyone in the house, family and workers, if they were not already there. And he spoke to them with such joy as tears ran down his cheeks. And there was his son standing next to him as evidence that he had met Jesus, who is the Christ, the Savior. And he preached to them the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. And how can anyone argue? The son was healed. The nobleman's life was obviously changed. Something supernatural had happened. The man left his house a couple days earlier in utter despair, and he came home with joy unspeakable. As Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, who having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Our joy will only be as great as our desperation. Right? Why was this man so overjoyed? And I'm sure he was. You can only imagine, put yourself in that situation. And he comes home and his, hun his son is he's not recovering. His son is completely well. Certainly, he was filled with great joy. It would be like if one of your children were in a terrible car accident and, and, and you heard and you immediately think that, that, oh, no, maybe they died or maybe they're in some terrible condition. And, and then you find out that they're okay. Your, your, your joy would be, would be great. Because your, your, your distress was great. Our joy will only be as great as our desperation. And I think that people hear that when we speak the gospel. But do we speak it like the nobleman who was overjoyed with gratefulness for what Christ had done for him? Do we speak it with joy as this nobleman did because of what Christ had done for him? And this is why I believe his whole house was saved. I believe it's why also when the, when the woman went into the city and was proclaiming Christ and asking the men, is this not the Christ? Again, I would believe that she was overwhelmed with joy that she had met Christ. And her testimony could not be contained. She was filled with joy. And I think at times, and I am guilty, People may hear us preach the gospel, and they think, I don't want to be like that guy. He's miserable. 
Shame on us. Shame on us. This man, when he preached the gospel, there were, I'm sure, tears running down his cheek. And he was telling those people in his house, look what Christ did for me. Look what Christ has done for me. He had living proof. His son was given life. This is the essence of preaching the gospel. If we're not here, we shouldn't preach it. Is this why we're preaching the gospel? Because we can say like the nobleman, look what Christ has done for me. A desperate, poor, wretched, filthy sinner. Desperate. And he saved me. He saved me. He gave me life. He gave me forgiveness and righteousness by a free gift. What joy we should be having. We should be walking down the street, skipping and jumping and saying, look what Christ has done for me. Certainly it was the attitude of this nobleman. Yet often I feel it's a drudgery that we go out and we say, we run through the thing that we've learned on how to share the gospel. Where's the joy? Where's the joy? Where's the joy of saying, look what Christ has done for me. He's done everything for me when I, I'm the least one that deserves it. And this nobleman had a testimony. And he had a testimony that Christ healed his son and not only healed his son, but healed him of his wretched heart. And he preached the gospel to his family and they were saved. They could not resist. They could not deny that this man was radically changed. He was filled with joy and thankfulness for what Christ had done for him. And that is at the heart of our testimony. Is it not? And at the heart of our evangelism is our testimony. And I pray today that each of us would be filled with the joy of knowing that I deserve nothing from God. That's why I don't know how people even gain joy from these doctrines like God loves everybody or, or somehow God owes everybody salvation. The great joy of salvation is that God owes me nothing but hell. God owes me nothing but judgment. I am a poor, wretched, vile sinner, period. But by his grace, by his pure mercy, he has saved us. And what a contrast it is and what joy it brings to the heart. And what joy we can go out to others with and say, look what Christ has done for me. He can do the same thing for you. And I pray that this would be the, at the heart of our testimony and at the heart of our preaching the gospel. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the examples that we have before us in scripture. Even as this nobleman went home and obviously preached the gospel to his whole household and they got saved 
oh God, please work in us that we would speak of what Christ has done with us and be filled with joy and great expectations. Please work in us. Work in those who do not know Christ, that they would be brought to know him and know the great joy being in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know some of that is um, conjecture, but I think that it's Bible conjecture. I mean, when you can connect one text with another text, and I don't think we're given all the details here with the nobleman, but I think that uh, we can uh, assume certain things. And, and uh, from uh, the, the woman at the well's testimony, from other people's testimony, from the Apostle Paul's testimony, um, and from the joy that we're to have spoken of in other places. But does anybody have any um, questions or, or comments? Either on the phone or on the video or um, here. Isn't it true, though? And I speak to myself. I really do speak to myself. I mean, and, and actually, it's been affecting me since we've been in this fourth chapter. And when we looked at the woman at the well's testimony and how she, I'm, I'm sure she was filled with great excitement when she went back and told them that she had met Christ, you know. And it's been affecting me in my evangelism. And I've been praying and, and meditating on the Lord and, and what he's done for me and having that great joy that we should be out speaking the gospel with. Um, certainly at times it, it gets, you're in a battle when you're preaching the gospel and it can get um, difficult or, or, but I think the overall um, disposition ought to be one of joy and the overall um, message that we have is that we are pointing people to Christ. Yes, we must speak of judgment and sin and, and the law. We would be in error if we were not, for certainly those things are biblical. But even in preaching those things, we're preaching those things to get people to Christ. Um, because that's our motive, is to is to that people know him and know what great things he has done for us. And uh, praise his holy name. So if there are no questions or comments, um, we can uh, we can go. Did you have something, Jeff? When people say their testimony, a lot of them say how they were healed. And here we have an older man who is kind of really healed. And he said the healing that May God use the healing as an instrument to save mm-hmm. us. I find it very hard to sometimes um, when people say the testimony they say that they can feel that God has given them what they need and all like the desperate looking for something God gives them. 
the time of need. Mm-hmm. Well, the Bible interprets the Bible, so we know that um, this um, man had the Apostle Paul's testimony. And you see it in little glimpses there. You don't see the full fruition of it, but you do um, see it in little glimpses, like when he um, heard the word of Christ, he believed and obeyed, which is the pattern. But then we can go to Paul's testimony and see the full testimony of, of this man, right? Or even the woman at the well gives us a little more detail on her testimony. And you can start to see how they all weave together. And um, and I would say that healing actually um, blinds those who are not um, called. And it opens the eyes of those that are. And I think you see that through John's gospel too, or through all the through all the um, gospels. But I'm sorry, Joseph, were you finished with that? No. So um, I was reminded of where it says in Revelation, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of testimony, and loving not their life to the death. Hmm. Twelve ten, I think, or twelve eleven. Um, yeah, and, and there's a paradox there. I mean, because we don't evangelize, you know, in the sense of like, you know, acting like fools and and being like jolly in a way that would be, you know, ungodly in a sense. But at the same time, I mean. I would think there there has to be a disposition of the fact that our whole aim and purpose is to point people to Christ. And and we ought not to assume that that already is our aim and purpose. Um, you know, but um as we um meditate and pray then um that will be our purpose. So the joy doesn't always come across as, you know, smiling and and uh you know, jumping around or whatever, like a little kid would, but um, and they're happy. But certainly, it is the, it is the, or at least I would think that it's uh, the motive that is uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength, and I think we're strengthened in our testimony by the joy of knowing what Christ has done for us. Say the first part again. The no, the no, the means of the child. Right, the means of the. That's right. The means of the the, the child being sick was the means to the end. The end was that he and his house be saved. And so, um, well, it's a means to the end, which is Christ is glorified. (laughs) Christ is glorified in the redemption of his people. And so, the the end was Christ glorified. The means was. The, the boy sick and the people getting converted and uh, Christ is glorified. So um, 
the joy of salvation. Amen. Ought to be motivating us to speak it. I mean, you couldn't stop this guy, right? He's coming home. You can imagine the scene when he gets there. All these people are probably coming out of the house. And, and there's the son healed, you know, and well, when he left, he was like, you know, hours from death probably. And, uh, and him being a wealthy man, I'm sure the doctors did whatever they could do. And the hope, there was no hope. And now he comes home and his son's fully uh, healed. The scene must have been uh, quite joyous to say the least. And you could not stop him from telling them what happened, that he met Christ and that he now knows that Jesus is the Christ and that he, he not only healed his son, but he, he healed me, I'm sure. You can heal him saying, you. and the whole house got saved. Um, there's no way the whole house got saved. It's interesting, just that little detail changes actually the whole scenario and his whole house got saved. Because we really couldn't, I guess we could, but you, you really couldn't assume that he went home and preached the gospel until you read that little, just that little phrase, and his whole house. So he got, he believed, and his whole house, which tells us that he went home and he preached to them and the gospel. And I'm sure he was overwhelmed with joy as he did it, telling them about how he met Christ. And uh, it's a good, it's a great example for us. So let's um, let's pray and we'll go. Father in heaven, we do pray, oh Lord, that we would have the joy of the Lord, oh God, even in the dark day that we live, and certainly as dark as many uh, terrible things swirl around us, God, help us to have the joy of the Lord is our strength. And oh Lord, this world will soon pass. It's only a matter of minutes or seconds, and this will all be gone, and uh, our lives will be over. And the only thing that matters is if we will ever be with the Lord. That's the question. No, Lord, help us to be filled with joy. Help those that don't know you to know this joy, to forsake any joy, that this superficial joy that this world may offer. Please work in our hearts. We pray these things. Send us forth with Christ on our lips because of our love for him in our hearts, because he first loved us. We pray in Jesus' holy name.